Spencer Balfour, the team of brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It is his weekly Monday appearance. He's the editor, the managing editor, of not just the normal editor, folks. He's a managing editor of Fangraphs. His name is Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball in particular this week. We consider the cases of the following players. Gordon Beckham, now a member of the Angels. Rosny Castillo, now a member of the Boston Red Sox. And Alex Gordon, who continues to be a member of the Kansas City Royals. In addition to addressing the various circumstances of all those players I've just mentioned, Dave Cameron also, in what follows, reveals what one might call the overriding philosophy of every Fangraphs writer. Let's find a way to have this appeal to the fewest people possible. It is Fangraphs Audio Desk Feature, Managing Editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. We're doing it on a Monday. Are you making your regular Monday appearance on a Monday? Yeah, it's uh, for one more week, and then next week it will not be on Monday. Oh yeah, is now is Labor Day coming up? Labor Day is next Monday. I think you're going on a weekend excursion. Uh, slightly longer than a weekend. Oh okay, yeah, long weekend. Longer than a weekend. Longer I'm going. Than... I'm going on vacation for a week, but not not in a single week. I'm going from Thursday to Wednesday. So okay. it's a week vacation across two weeks. I want to tell you something. It's a term that may or may not be of some use to you in your future. Okay. Uh, as in particular around long holidays or like longish holidays, like uh, like say, well, if the equivalent for us would be Thanksgiving, right? Um, you know, with Thanksgiving, you usually get Thursday and Friday off, or sometimes even Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off, right? Uh, right. Right. That's a possibility. Yeah. So, and because of that. Um, and I know this, that, of course, when I was a teacher, this would happen. Uh, students would then take the Monday and Tuesday off. Yeah. Um, because I mean, if you're it, already gone more than half the week, what's the point? Yeah. So uh, the French have a term. Uh, they have a specific term for taking off more vacation days than you've been given. Okay. And the French term is uh, faire le pont or faire le pont. Uh, it means to, to do the bridge, to make the bridge. Do you know in American we also have a term for that? What is it? It's called a Derek Bell syndrome. Oh, no. What did Derek Bell always do? You don't remember Operation Shutdown? No. Uh, no, I don't. But this sounds, yeah. I, I think it was Derek Bell was with the Pirates or maybe towards the end of his career when he was with the Astros. At some point, he was unhappy with the role that he had been given, and he was bad and making a lot of money. And so he uh, <laughs> came to spring training and declared it was time for Operation Shutdown, in which he was not going to try. He would like be. He would put him in the field, and he would not run. Okay, yeah. So that's yeah. yeah at that it, point, it's a similar concept of like I'm here, but I'm not actually here. Yeah. So right. Sometimes I think players. Well, it's not. It's not a. I don't think I'm revealing anything to say that players will occasionally approach spring training differently than they would a regular season game. That seems fair to say. Right. I think he meant he was going to do that in the regular season too. Oh. He was, like, threatening to, like, if you don't play me every day, I'm going to sabotage your ability to play me at all. Yeah. Well, if he's not very good, the incentive to play him is not great, I'm, is I'm pretty sure he got cut soon thereafter. Yeah. 
You're not really endearing yourself to anyone by that. <laughs> yeah. Doing that. I, uh, he uh, got himself a, a long vacation. Yeah. So this hey. is, uh, if you want like more than a week's vacation, this is what you do. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's more than ferrying the pont. That's uh, uh, the French. Uh, occasionally, the uh, the train employees will uh, they will perform what they call Operation Shutdown, and there's a their term for it is grev though. It's essentially a strike, but they are very pers- ordered orderly about their strikes, about calling strikes. Uh, listen, hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Mm, let's talk about. I want it's a baseball related question. And it's not, I don't even know if we've written about it, probably because... Um, you don't read Fangraphs? No, no, no. It's a, I, I, we might not have written about it because it's not, not a huge, it was not a big move. Uh-huh. But uh, Gordon Beckham went to the Angels. And we have not written about that. Yeah, I think we haven't written about it. And I think, well, I don't know. I feel, guess what? I have, uh, con- my conscience is clean, is yeah. what I'll say about it. I, I was going to say, if anyone on the site would care about Gordon Beckham, it would be you. And if it's not you, it's no one. Well, no, because also, because Gordon Beckham has been the primary impediment to Marcus Semien getting playing time. Or one of the impediments. Also, Marcus Semien has been one of the impediments. <laughs> yeah, right. The, okay. the primary impediment is yeah. that Marcus Semien is bad. Yeah, well, yeah, he's performed badly. He's okay. actually, he's he's basically doing, he's he's playing well as a 23-year-old at AAA right now. So that's that's promising. Sure. Yeah. That's Maybe great. less promising than when he played well as a 22-year-old in AAA right, and then yeah. flopped in the big leagues. Yeah, right. Less promising, but he's still he's he's got a little bit to go before he he's a failure. Uh, right. In any case, Gordon Beckham kind of is a failure. I mean, yes, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Absolutely a failure. Yeah. Absolutely a failure. Well, so he was the seventh pick in the draft and like considered like a polished college bat with like very high upside uh, mm-hmm. or very high floor. I mean, like the the odds of Gordon Beckham. Being nothing, we're not supposed to be very high. Right, and so here some weird things about Gordon Beckham. One of them is he was excellent this first season. Right. Uh, he was worth. I mean, I mean, he's a 22 year old. Uh, in slightly more than 400 plate appearances, he's worth two and a half wins. That's great. Yeah. You're very yeah. excited. You're not just saying that was a good performance in and of itself. It was a good performance in and of itself. But you say this is good for right. from a 22 year old who's a you know middle infielder. And at that point, also. Um, you know, it's not like he had a crazy batted ball profile. It was pretty right. normal. So um, <clears throat> the next season, he played less well. The season after, even less well. And it really has not improved a lot since then. La- last year, I think he began well. Maybe there was a wrist injury in there uh, at some point. Uh, but it still it, – it did not end up to be a great season. He was worth just a win or something. Yeah. I, I guess uh, – well, first of all, this is, this is maybe a dumb question, but maybe you I'm gonna I'm not giving you a lot to work with, but please do something with it. Is is there something that sh- we should have was there something we should have known about with regard to Gordon Beckham, or is this just a thing that happens? I mean, this gets back to one of the conversations we've had previously about your skepticism, uh, a recent skepticism after Seattle has failed to turn these kinds of players into good. Or these kinds of prospects into good players. Uh, I think Dustin Ackley is kind of a similar story of like he came up, he was a you know the number two pick in the draft. It uh, was basically a this guy isn't is going to hit uh, player coming out of college. Uh, was excellent in his first half season in the big leagues, and then you know has been less good ever since. He's you know on a decent role right now, but he's you know topped out as a, an, a, an average hitter, uh, and you know been below that for decent stretches of time. Uh, I think, you know, we can look back even like Ben Greve, right? He came up with Oakland as a top prospect and was very good early in his career. And he peaked at like 23 and was out of baseball by 30. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are players who kind of have this, 
um, early decline that doesn't follow anything like a normal aging curve that you, you wonder what happened. I mean, they were talented players. They were, you know, first round picks. They were, uh, you know, there wasn't scouting concerns about these guys for the most part. It's not like, you know, these were guys that stat heads liked and scouts were identifying all kinds of flaws in their swing or in their mechanics or whatever. Uh, there was just general consensus that these guys were good prospects and then they were good in the major leagues for a little while and then they got either figured out or they stopped adjusting or they, uh, had some kind of problem that derailed their career and I, I don't know that we can figure it out really. My guess is that with some of these things there are maybe off the field things that, you know, maybe it's a work ethic related, uh, issue where, you know, most major leaguers who follow a normal aging curve will put in, you know, some amount of hours that allows them to continue to improve and they'll study video and they'll, you know, train and, and do things that we just take for granted. And we just assume all major leaguers do them. And maybe some of these guys don't do that. And they, you know, go party or they, uh, you know, watch TV or play video games or do something that is not productive. Uh, and we can't know that. Uh, but maybe it shows up in their performance. Right. And you're not saying that, that that's definitely true about Gordon Beckham. It's just yeah, right. attempting a, to find a, a speculation about players who may peak early for, for not obvious or injury related reasons. Um, you know, it's possible that some guys outwork other players. And I think, you know, we see players like Raul Abanez, for instance, who played until he was 40 after being a non prospect, uh, renowned for his work ethic and, and, you know, his, his strength and conditioning programs, and Roy Halladay is another guy, I mean, you know, certainly a good prospect, but had his struggles and basically reinvented himself and was, you know, considered one of the hardest workers in baseball. I think, you know, there's certainly a work ethic element to improving, uh, and it's possible that our, you know, our assumptions about aging curves require some minimal amount of investment on the player's part that some players put it in, some players don't. Right, so this, so there's a, somewhere there's like a baseline, there's like a 50 grade in terms of uh, the amount of uh, work a, a player will put in, the amount of practice time and training that a player will put in. I mean, I guess at that point to either to preserve his skills or to increase them slightly, and then the, there might be players who who exceed that and players who don't who don't reach that sort of 50 grade of effort. Right, and I'm, you know it might not even just be quantity it might be the quality of of work they're putting in so maybe these guys and again this is all super speculative we're not applying this to gordon beckham specifically we're saying that you know maybe these kinds of players as a group uh you know spend a lot of time taking bp or doing kinds of things that maybe don't have a high return on investment where if they were watching video or if they were uh you know maybe doing things that allowed them to understand and prepare a little better for that day's pitcher or, you know, kind of figuring out their own weaknesses, analyzing their swing, uh, studying great hitters and seeing what they do that, you know, or they're not doing that these great hitters are doing that they physically could be capable of doing. You know, maybe there's uh, not necessarily a, a time element to it. Maybe they're putting in enough work. They're just not putting in the right kind of work. Right. Well, we know that So, if you're drafting a player – or if you're working with a player or thinking about trading for a player in your own major league organization, there's a certain amount of information that's available to you and a certain amount that isn't and a certain amount that can't, right? So um, if you're going to draft a pitcher, you say, well, he throws this hard. I mean, that's everybody knows basically how hard that guy throws. Right. Uh, and then things like raw power are pretty easy to see from a batting practice, right? Right. Could he hit it 500 feet in batting practice? That's a, that's a thing he can do that other people will not. Right. And then some things take slower to develop, but I think that I think a piece of yours that I've always enjoyed 
is the one in which you looked at the, maybe the, uh, the, the idea of scouting pitching versus scouting hitting. A lot of the hitting skills, the things that help you in the long term in, in the majors, it takes kind of a long time to tell if a player has them. Right. Yeah. Like, right. Play, like plate discipline, you can't. It's hard to get that from a week, or you know, even from like a week of scouting guy. And yet, that's going to be something. His ability to lay off of pitchers' pitches, that's a big deal. Yep. And I would think that even more than that, knowing a like having a kind of intimate knowledge of a player's uh, work habits and his ability to uh, his ability you know, to essentially transform himself or to adapt to changes, adapt to hardships. That's like the that'd be like a that's like it takes like a lifetime to know about know that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think you know last week's signing of Bruce Castillo kind of uh, is a great example of this, right? So like you know the Red Sox paid seventy two million dollars for six years of Bruce Castillo. Uh, you know this is they're they're betting on Castillo being a, a, a average at least or better major league player. Uh, and if you listen to their comments, it's basically like we're pretty sure he's a good defensive center fielder. We know he's fast, so there's you know a chance that he's going to be a good base runner. Uh, as for how much he's going to hit, we don't know. Like, John Farrell's, like, openly saying this the day they signed the guy. People are like, so do you guys think he's going to hit? And he's like, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> you know, like, uh, the Red Sox, after spending $70 million on this guy, are not convinced, without a doubt, that he's a great major league hitter or even a good major league hitter. If they were, they would have spent $170 million on the guy because, he, you know, a good defensive center fielder who's fast and a very good hitter is one of the best players in baseball. Uh, and I think, you know, this is not necessarily a, a young prospect who are projecting at 18. Christine Castillo is 27. He's in the prime of his career, basically. Uh, you know, we haven't gotten a chance to see him play against high-level pitching, but he's been around for a while. This is not something where you're trying to take a kid and project what he'll be in a few years. You're trying to project what he'll be next next month or, you know, in a few months. Uh, and I think the general consensus is that it's very difficult. And, you know, I hearken back to the Jose Abreu thing of, you know, Major League Scouts went and watched Jose Abreu uh, take batting practice, and, and, you know, they analyzed his swing and tried to decide what kind of hitter he was going to be. And the general scouting report, at least the one that got released to the public, was that he was a very patient hitter who covered the plate really well, had a really good idea at the plate, but could get exposed on good stuff inside, and had moderate power. And the reality of Jose Abreu has been the exact opposite. <laughs> He's a, an aggressive hitter who swings at too many pitches, doesn't get exposed, uh, you know, can hit pitches on the inside corner, and has massive power. So these are the best scouts in the world doing the best they can on a guy who is, you know, 27 years old, not a projectable guy, and they just missed, uh, you know, what he was. And I think that speaks to how difficult scouting hitting really is. Yeah, right. And then, it, well, and I guess the team that, was the most optimistic about him and was willing to combine that with paying money about for him, they they ended up being the winners in, in the White Sox. And I think if you called Rick Hahn and you gave him some true term and you said, hey, did you think Jose Abreu was this good? He'd say, absolutely not. <laughs> it, it, you know, if they thought Jose Abreu was going to be what he has been this year, the bidding would have been double what it was. Right. Yeah. And so now with, with regard to the Red Sox, to what degree are they betting on Rosny Castillo himself and to what degree are – they betting on the crazy return that that Cuban players in particular have provided their respective teams over the last whatever you know three to five years. I mean, so I think you know the Red Sox would say they're just betting on Castillo because they're not signing Yasiel Puig and Yuan Cespedes. Well, they are signing Yuan. They are signing Yuan. I mean, <laughs> well, they traded for Yuan Cespedes, right? right. right. Uh, I mean, you know, this seventy billion dollar bet is a specific bet on Rusny Castillo. That said, I don't think there's any question that the price inflation of this deal and the Masavir Snaka deal 
uh, kind of like the two big um, international deals we've seen in the last, I don't know, eight months or so, ten, nine months, uh, are responses to the fact that these, the history of these deals are, is very, very strongly positive. Uh, and I don't, I, I think it's hard to argue at this point that the international market was not dramatically undervalued for the last five years. I think the risk premium that teams were putting on seeing guys in Japan or seeing guys in Cuba, um, or Korea or, you know, other, other non-major league entities uh, the adjustments were were too high. We're, we were saying, you know, like, we're not sure how good this guy's going to be, so we're going to tamper our expectation and only pay him $4 million a year, $5 million a year, when the reality is $4 million a year, $5 million a year buys you a bad player. You're risking very little giving Yafiel Puig $42 million, which at the time was decried as a ridiculous decision. And the, and the kind of the Dodgers were vilified for throwing $40 million at a guy that some teams saw as a non-prospect. $40 million is a lot of money. But I think if you look at it on an annual basis, they were paying for a win, a win per season. There's a lot of upside there, obviously, and then Puig turned into one of the best players in baseball. The downside was very low, and so I think these deals, when you have the chance to get a three- or four-win player, and the downside is that you're only paying for you know a middle reliever or something, that the prices were just too low, and so... The fact that Castillo is, you know, not supposed to be a Puig or a, an Abreu, but he's still got more money than either of them, uh, speaks to the fact that teams have just been too conservative with their their valuations of international players. Right. Uh, two points, or two, one point, one question. The the point is that for listeners who, if this is your first edition of uh, Fangraphs Audio with Dave Cameron, uh, Dave Cameron's, I guess, what, co-guest? Uh, your friend yeah. is uh, uh, Liberty as a dog. Yeah. Yeah, she is a uh, 15, 16-month-old Labrador mix, Yeah, and she's very excited to play tug. Right, she's very energetic, yeah, so yeah. very good. There you are. This so, is uh, about an hour after I took her on a two-mile run, and she's right. still full of energy. Now, did you run that, too? <laughs> yes. Oh, good good job, David Cameron. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> did you think I just, like, let her go and then uh, called her when she got two miles away? I didn't know what you, what you do. How does she do off-leash? I, I would think that... So I was, so I ran around my neighborhood and she was, so I have her on the leash, but I don't always hold the leash. So okay. over the last couple of weeks, we've been training her to basically walk next to us without us holding the leash. And she's yeah. done very well. Good. Uh, the, the key is if she sees a squirrel or a friend or something that distracts her that is infinitely more interesting than myself, that's when I have to step on the leash and, and get her back. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's, uh, right. It's tough with all that stimulus. Yeah. Uh, that is the per- first point. The second point was, Oh yeah. So with regard to, um, and I, I'm actually gonna we're gonna bring we're gonna revisit the Gordon, the idea of Gordon Beckham momentarily. But we've gone into to Castillo here. With the addition of Castillo to the Red Sox outfield, I almost I almost made a Knockrafts post of this, but I didn't find exactly the precise way to do it. The idea to the Knockrafts post was uh, it was going to be a list of people in the entire world who could count the number of Red Sox outfielders on one hand. Um, uh, Antonio Alfonseca. Yeah, right. And you would need more than Alfonseca, I think, because uh, there are. Well, let's see. So we have Castillo now. Yeah. We have uh, Cespedes. We have huh? Victorino. Right, he's hurt, but yes. Right. Uh, we have Craig. Yeah, who's kind of not really an outfielder, but right. Probably shouldn't be an outfielder, but they also have Napoli and right, Ortiz, Ortiz. So that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And then you have uh, Betts and Bradley. Uh, yeah. Correct. And then. That's six. Yeah, there's one more. Come on. Brock, Brock Holt's kind of in there. Yeah, right. Or so I'd say you could say seven. I, there's probably a seventh. Uh, oh, Dan, Daniel, Daniel Nava. Nava. Daniel right. Nava. Yeah. yeah. So it could be eight. Yeah. 
Um, so it turns out there are not a lot of people in the world with eight fingers. But then I got going and I found a guy with with a hundred pounds scrotum, which is different, but uh-huh. it's another physical deformity, and not as not as not as relevant to the podcast. Yeah, or really anything in general. Yeah, right. But to that guy, it's probably a big deal to him. <laughs> yeah, probably. He actually got it removed. It was like a tumor. He got it removed. He's yeah. better now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they have so many outfielders. They do have uh, – but I think the key is they don't have a lot of these guys for the long term, right? So like Victorino is a free agent after next year. Cespedes is a free agent after next year. Um, you know, Craig I think is assigned for a couple more years, but – the reality is he's not an outfielder long term, and mm-hmm. and Napoli's a free agent after next season. Uh, so I think you know if if they're thinking that Alan Craig is going to be a significant part of their future, which he may or may not be, it's probably as a first baseman DH. So you take him out of the mix, uh, and all of a sudden you're you know for 2016 and beyond, it's not that many extra guys. Right. But for, so next year they'll have a lot. Next year it's and next year it's crowded. Yeah. Right. And so what do they do? Just keep Bradley and Betts in the minors? Do they still have options left? So they do, mm-hmm. uh, but my guess is that Jackie Bradley's going to profile as a fourth outfielder for them, and so they're going to keep him around as a defensive replacement. And you know, not a, not a terrible idea, especially with uh, Victorino's health issues, is to have a you know good defensive outfielder who could maybe slide over to right field and and play their kind of expansive right field area. Uh, so I, I think they're going to keep Bradley as depth and and hope he hits. I mean, he's hit well in the minors; he hasn't hit well at all in the majors, but his value is really low. So trading him at this point, when he actually has value to them. Uh, and might have more trade value in the future, I think would be a little silly. I think Mookie Betts is their best trade chip. Uh, you know, he's a second baseman by trade. They moved into the outfield because Dustin Pedroia was there. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe more valuable as a good defensive second baseman than, in, you know, a, an outfielder just trying to learn to play the position. And, uh, you know, he can he can hit. <laughs> You're certainly a Mookie Betts fan. I think if mm-hmm. the Red Sox called a bunch of teams this winter and said, What's the best pitcher we can get from Mookie Betts? They could get some pretty good pitchers, and I, I think that's going to be the plan. Okay, yeah. So, um, so yeah. In, in in the case with, let me just ask you about Jackie Bradley. We haven't mentioned him on the podcast, I don't think. Uh, he was a player who, as a minor leaguer, um, was pretty good at. I mean, he had pretty impressive plate discipline numbers, generally speaking, especially rel- you know age relative to level. Right. Um, and he's a, he struck out a lot. In the yeah, big leagues, in yeah. In the big leagues, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's right at uh, 28, 29%. Yeah. And, you know, he's not also – he's not a guy who's selling out for power. So right. this indicates something's going on. Either he's getting himself into terrible counts or he just uh, is not have – he's not have great contact skills generally. Right. And, and it's, some, it's something that's happening between the sort of pitchers you see in the minor leagues and the sort of pitchers you see in the major leagues. Yeah, I think this is a skill set to be a little wearisome of when you see prospects. Is when, you know a lot of guys still uh, when you're evaluating a minor league prospect, you're going to look at batting average and on base percentage and slugging percentage, and say, oh, you know, like I don't actually care about the underlying skills. I just care that he's produced. But I think if you look at it, the history of of minor league prospects who post high on base percentages while not hitting for power and striking out more than say 20% of the time is very poor. Like there there's just not that many good big league hitters who strike out a lot and hit for very little power and turn into good players. There, there are some. It's not impossible. But you have to sustain a very high batting average on balls in play. You have to be a good defender, and you have to be a good base runner. That's basically the the way to, to make up for the lack of power and contact skills. Most major league hitters have one of the two. Right. If you don't have power, you have contact. Uh, if you're great, you have both. But having one of the two is almost a prerequisite to play in the big leagues. Uh, Bradley's defense might be good enough that 
he could get by as a low power moderate contact guy. He can't get by as a low power low contact guy. So at the minimum, he's going to have to improve one of the two. Improving contact is probably easier than improving power, but you know we have seen guys like Carlos Gomez and Michael Bourne come into the league as, as similar kinds of players and have similar struggles early in their career. And you know both of them have turned into all stars. Right, and it, and it should be noted that um, it. It's highly informed by his defensive skills, but he's been worth, worth one and a half wins, uh, you know, according to the methodology we use, uh, in under 400 plate appearances. So that's an average player. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the Red Sox probably would su- suggest that while they think he's a very good defensive player, they don't think he's actually an average player while he's hitting like he is. Right, right. Uh, and they would like him to hit better if he's going to play enough to, to sustain 600 plate appearances. Okay. Yeah. They would probably say that. Uh, hey, so... So I said we were going to revisit the idea of Gordon Beckham because what we said with regard to Gordon Beckham, and actually Jackie Bradley's profile fits into this as well, especially this sort of uh, uh, this idea of defensive metrics informing a large part of a player's uh, wins. Uh, Gordon Beckham, as you noted, was a player who was considered a college or a polished college hitter, and he demonstrated that in uh, his first exposure to the major leagues, and that did not uh, did it less so for the next five years or whatever. Uh, a player who of late has been at the top of and has been no lower than second place on the award leaderboards is Alex Gordon. Correct. You uh, you encouraged um, the, the readership to talk about Alex Gordon with you. Uh, you wrote a piece last week, so let's talk about Alex Gordon. Because, <laughs> as a number of people have noted, especially I think after um, – I don't know if listeners know this or not, but I think that the defensive – uh, rating defensive metrics are typically updated Sunday night, Monday morning. Uh, that used to be true. Now it's Tuesday morning. Oh, now it's Tuesday morning. Right. Well, maybe it was a Tuesday as of Tuesday morning last week. Uh, the, uh, Alex Gordon took the lead in uh, the, on the war leaderboard. Right. Yes. Last Tuesday he passed Mike Trout. Although I think he passed Mike Trout due to his solid offensive performance over the weekend. I think the defensive numbers didn't actually change that much last okay. week, but. But he had a good weekend offensively, and so therefore he overtook Trout because of his defensive gap. Right. So Alex Gordon is a bit of a strange player, especially – and this is where the idea of Beckham comes in, right? Especially for how he was regarded uh, coming out of what, University of Nebraska, was it? Uh, Beckham came out of the University of Georgia. Right. But I'm saying Gordon. Oh, yes. Gordon came out of the University Gordon of Nebraska. Gordon came out of Nebraska, and yeah. he was a top pick. He was second overall pick. Number two, yes. Number two, yeah. And yeah. – he was uh, and he was excellent in the minor leagues. Uh, correct. Yeah. And then he was less less excellent when he started his major league career. Yeah, well, I mean, he was good at the start and then struggled. Kind of had this uh, similar kind of thing where his his debut was fine-ish, and then he really tailed off for several years. Uh, and then he kind of reinvented himself after they moved him off from third base, and and that's where he's become a little bit of a star. Yeah, right. So by our count, he's been worth. No less than five wins, uh, or at any point over the last four years. I mean, except for last year, he was three and a half. Of course, a lot of this is is def- is informed by defense, and so people, I think, not unreasonably, and people including Jeff Passan, for example. Uh, it's Jeff Passan, and if you uh, call him Jeff Passan, he's going to punch you in the face. Well, he's invited to punch me in the face. I apologize. It was a. I'm going to say it was an innocent mistake, though. Jeff. He is very sensitive. Uh, uh, what I've heard, actually, never mind it. But I've heard stories of people calling him Jeff Passan, and he he doesn't like it. Do I get a pass because I lived in France, and that would be how French people pronounce it? No. Do I get a pass because 
I will cry like a baby if you punch me in the face. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the, uh, so right, a lot of his value though, not all, not, I mean certainly not exclusively, but much of his value has been informed by his defensive numbers, which have, I, I don't know, in some points it's based, I know it certainly at points it's been based almost entirely on his, uh, talent for outfield assists. He's, well, that's certainly in part of it, yeah. Yeah, he's compiled a lot of them, but he's has, he's had excellent defensive ratings including the positional adjustment for left field. And he's not like a Brett Gardner, Carl Crawford type, or he doesn't necessarily look like those guys who's stealing 30, 40 bases a year while while also playing elite left field. Right. He's one of these guys who is uh, a good defender without being super fast. And, then, you know, I think Chase Utley has kind of fallen into this category and maybe even lately Johnny Peralta, even though that's still a source of contention for some people. We know that these guys exist. You don't have to be fast to be a good defensive player. Right. So, what is the the other skill? Is roots the efficiency of his roots? The instincts? instincts yeah, I mean, is the thing I, I hear your instincts a lot in reports. First step, I think, is a is a big deal. I mean, yeah. if you uh, quickly read the direction and the angle of the ball, and you go in that direction, uh, you can make up for a loss of foot speed by, you know, accelerating quicker than you know maybe a fast guy who takes a while to read the ball. Right. Okay. Uh, but but Alex Gordon, yeah, he has made himself into like a legitimate, like as you said, a legitimate star. I haven't added it up, but I would say I would guess that uh, over the last four seasons, he must have one of the top uh, WAR figures of any major leaguer. Yeah, I think he's in the top ten. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so is he uh, is he the best player in baseball? Is that is that what that means when I see his name atop the list of WAR leaders? No, no, it's not. And, okay. you know, I, I see people quoting this sometimes where they'll say on Twitter, like, Fangraph says that Alex Gordon is the best player in baseball. No, we don't. <laughs> Fangraph says that Mike Trout is the best player in baseball. The fact that he's not maybe having the best season, which is uh, eminently debatable and completely uh, within the realm of, of margin of error, maybe he is. Uh, but even if he wasn't, even if Mike Trout was having the sixth or seventh best year in baseball, he would still be the best player in baseball. The best player doesn't have to be the best player every season. So I think, you know, like, uh, if you're averaging and kind of saying, like, what is the best of this group, someone who finishes, like, second, third, fourth, second, third, fourth, is going to rank out higher over some kind of uh, grouping than some guy who finishes first and 15th and first and 30th and first and 79th. Uh, So, you know, if you're consistently near the top, you're probably going to be the best player in baseball, which is, you know, Trout has been at the top the last two years, might be at the top again. Um, but even if he wasn't, it wouldn't mean that we do not think Mike Trout is the best player in baseball anymore. Okay, right. Uh, but Alex Gordon, but even running some conservative numbers with regard to, or conservative regressions uh, with regard to Alex Gordon's defense, he still is probably the uh, top ten player, yeah? Top ten position player, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, not not including pitchers. Uh, and I think you know Gordon's what thirty one, so he's kind of probably this is the end of his peak, most likely. Like this is probably Gordon's career year, and uh, he'll get worse in the future, which is not true of some other players. So if you're projecting forward, you wouldn't necessarily say that Gordon will continue to be one of the ten best players. But over the last three or four years, yeah, he probably has been. Okay. Hey, look at we've uh, we've already hit the half hour mark. That went fast. Yeah, it did. Yeah, do you have, is there anything I didn't ask about that I ought to have? Uh, well, probably many things, but mm-hmm. maybe not that, that the listener would care about. A couple points uh, that just because you're someone who's nerdy about baseball and sitting in my living room, I don't get to do that a lot uh, to talk to that sort of person. Have you noticed? Did you just, have you noticed what Zach Walters has done of late? 
I have done noticed what Zach Walters has done of late. He is, uh, I've also noticed what Drupal Cabrera has done of late. Like both of the trades working out fairly well for both sides at this point. Oh, okay, yeah. And, uh, also, wait, who else was gonna, oh yeah, oh, you, uh, I want to tell you something. And, uh, this goes to anyone who listens to this but has, doesn't listen to any other edition of the podcast. I asked, uh, Kylie McDaniel, uh, during last, uh, last Friday, Saturday, whatever, uh, a prospect podcast about what might be contributing to Mike Fires' success because Mike Fires is the best pitcher over his last four starts. Right. Uh, and Kylie gives a, a pretty excellent explanation of it. So that's just, that's like the first five or ten minutes of it. So to you, Dave Cameron, I know you, um, you try and get to every episode of the podcast. If that happened to slip through, you're listening. Uh, do consider it because it's, uh, it's pretty smart stuff from Kylie who, who, yeah, I find, I think is a silly person. Um, but uh, in this particular case, um, he has a, provided a pretty excellent explanation of why he thinks fire is succeeding. Now, if I'm not correct, mistaken, you posted that podcast on Saturday, correct? Yeah. So uh, you were like, let's let's find a way to have this appeal to the fewest people possible. Let's take a Kylie McDaniel podcast, which is going to narrow the scope. That's yeah. a Fangraphs <laughs> podcast, first of all. So it's already narrow. Yeah. And then it's going to be a Kylie McDaniel Fangraphs podcast. So we're cutting down the audience even more. Yeah. And then we're posting it on a weekend. To ensure that no one listens. No one listens, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, n- yeah. Well, I tried to, uh, I tried to record with Kylie on Thursday evening, uh, but Kylie was a little busy. Kylie said, well, you know, actually, uh, it doesn't look like it's gonna happen. So then it was pushed to Friday, and I had some, uh, I had some obligations uh, Friday after the podcast, so I was not able to edit it to the level, my exacting level. You know, my, uh, my very high, I have high, I have high expectations, you know, for the podcast. Uh, so, you yeah. must be disappointed every week. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Disappointed in, in, not just in my work for Fangraphs, <laughs> but in my, my life as a husband, as a, now as a dog owner. Yeah. Yeah. You, so now, now that you have had the dog for two weeks, have uh, you just happy a week with the and, like a week and three days. Yeah. Okay. Well, going on two weeks. Yeah. Uh, happy with the decision? Oh, so happy, yeah. We actually just had a uh, private, like a trainer over just for a consultation. She's doing such a good job, but here's one thing that's very difficult for and it might be exacerbated by the fact that she was uh, transported up from the American South where a lot of dogs come from high-kill shelters, Yeah, is that um, she is not a big fan of being in her crate. And we've tried to do a lot of work with the crate to make it a place that is like a beautiful den for her where great things right. happen. Yeah. Uh, and it works, it works as long as we're here, but as soon as we leave the house, she goes bananas. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if we showed you Liberty's crate reaction when you were here, but it's the same thing. Liberty is okay with the crate, but doesn't like it. And she's actually, like, she likes it more now that there's like a routine where my wife puts her in when she goes to work in the morning and then I'll let her out a few hours later and yeah. she gets treats associated with it. And so I think as like she develops routine and understands like my confinement in here will be limited to several hours and not the rest of my life, she'll like it more. But I don't think this is an unusual trait. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't I don't think so either. And yeah, in terms of – I know routine is pretty important and the uh, – she has – I mean she's only had a week of it at our house. So, so yeah, it's just a – she makes a – she's genetically designed to make a, a heartbreaking noise. Right. Like it's it's not whining as so much as like if you're far away it actually sounds a little bit like a bird chirping. Right. It's a so but a whimper maybe. Ah, uh, it's a oh it's it's difficult to hear without reacting. And also we live pretty close to people here, so 
Um, there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of kids and other dogs on campus, but we don't right. actually need to contribute to the noise pollution. Well, the dog is fairly small, correct? Yeah, she is. Yeah. So she did, would make a small, small noise, maybe. Yeah, annoying one. Right, but not one that like neighbors three houses down could hear. Uh, yeah, it depends. Yeah, well, it's been warm, so the, we have the windows up. Windows closed, maybe not. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's that's the story. But it no, but otherwise she's working out fantastic. Yes, she's beautiful, beautiful Good. animal. Um, and uh, you know, I hope she. I don't. I don't expect her to ever die. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, Cameron. We have a meeting to get to in 20 minutes, so let's give you a little bit of time to do whatever Dave Cameron does. Yeah, I'm sure I will figure something out. All right. Well, first of all, let's say goodbye to the people. So I'll say thank you, Dave Cameron. Thank you, Carson Stewie. That has been managing editor Dave Cameron. Uh, this has been uh, I am why well, and will continue to be Carson Stewie. This has been Fangraphs Audio.